from the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. This is Religion for Life. I'm John Shuck, and I am excited to have in the studio with me today, Kiran Singh Sarah. He is the executive director of the International Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee. And uh, just uh, welcome to Religion for Life. Excellent. Thank you, John. It's good to be here. So when did you uh, take this position? I started post in August last year. I had just graduated from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I was on a Rotary World Peace Fellowship scholarship. So I was in the United States for two years. And then I had this opportunity where I was like, oh, where next? Uh, A job came up and I applied for it. To tell you the truth, I'd never heard of the International Storytelling Center or the National Storytelling Festival before that. And so I was kind of an unknown um, to the, so that's what the storytelling community say. Um, but I came in and I started post, well, I had my interview and I was offered a job within an hour. And I started post in mid-August last year. Mid-August last year. And you've had, of course, a great deal of experience, though, in storytelling. That's correct, yeah. Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I've been telling stories, I think, ever since I've been able to speak. Mm-hmm. And I've probably been telling stories before I could even speak. And uh-huh. there's all different ways that we tell stories. And I'm I'm a big sort of advocate for di- looking at storytelling as in its mo- most diverse form, basically, from dance, music, performing arts, to the way children scribble um, stories on pieces of paper to communicate mm-hmm. who they are to their parents. Um, so I've been I've been telling stories, I suppose. I'm not a professional storyteller, but I believe that everyone is a storyteller because it's how we form relationships with individuals, with our community. It helps us to uh, understand where we come from, um, kind of where we're going. But it's it's a really important part of our DNA. It's it's something that it's, it's, uh, we're kind of born with. We're born with a repertoire of stories that go back thousands of years. Um, so I... I suppose when it started to re- it came it started to realize this was in my early years growing up in South England and I was the first non-white person born in my hometown in southern England in mm. Eastbourne a small town of about 80,000 people but my parents had arrived um in Britain as refugees from Uganda now this was the same time that in this country and just down the road um Jimmy Neal Smith had begun the first public storytelling festival in the world. Uh, he's he is the director here at in Jonesboro. He's my predecessor. Her he predecessor. was a, yeah. He's mm-hmm. my friend and he's my predecessor. He was the founder of right. the of the National Storytelling Festival and, and ISC. Um, but I wasn't born yet. I was in England, and so. But one of the things I talk about is that when my parents came to Britain in 1972 they weren't allowed to bring any possessions with them. They had three months to leave the country by orders of Idi Amin, the dictator in Uganda, and he threw out all British passport holders and the South Asian community. So thousands of people had to flee the borders. They had to, and there were, many people were robbed on the way. They had to leave their houses, their jobs, their money, their possessions, their land. But what they could bring with them was their stories. Mm. And that was what was passed on to me. There was not just traditional tales from my own faith and belief and cultures, but also contemporary stories about their experiences. And they weren't told as victim stories. They were told as stories of celebration. So you were really born in this matrix of yes. international uh, yeah. aspect and, and conflict and of 
and of movement and forced movement and and how you but you also say you say that you found ways to celebrate your existence or your family did that absolutely yeah i mean i like to think of it as my mom was born in kenya my father was born in india hmm. my brother in uganda and i'm in england so we are the mini united nations inside my house <laughs> right so we grew up with these stories that were we're telling these stories about all these diverse experiences we are now my mom passed away but my dad's remarried to a hindu gujarati we have not one person in my immediate family is married to or dating someone from the same religion or ethnicity or culture so you can imagine at christmas gatherings or vasaki or um any of the faithful cultural gatherings we have a great big celebration we all get together and we tell stories from our from our upbringings from our life experiences and we joke about it we and we've got a great sense of humor i remember asking my dad once and i said when i recorded my family history i said dad what was it like to um you know leave uganda at kind of gunpoint you came to britain there was the the far right fascist groups that stormed the airport the plane couldn't land there was you had a shirt on your back you wore a turban people called you an alien because they never seen a a brown man in a turban before and mm. there was racism it goes it must have been difficult and he said no son it was fun because he was 20 <laughs> he said it was 21 years old him and my mom were young a young married couple they had a young baby and for them it was a sense of adventure as well they'd mm. come from they'd come they had a good life growing up um they had lots of experience but that's my dad's take on life is he lo- always looks at the bright side of things and anything any negative can also be used as a learning experience and it's it's great fodder for um storytelling and so yeah. i've always tried to take that approach on life and so yeah stories are something that we celebrate it's but it, you can it's a kind of a framework for also understanding and grappling with difficult issues that you might have to deal with um growing up in south england i remember at a very young age try to understand what it was why i was sort of different and i wore long i had long hair as a sikh i was you know a different color to most of my peers growing up in a in a elementary school and i started to read but every morning i used to read the lyrics of bob marley on mm. the, the lps when they had the big records of legend and i used to read these lyrics and it's like well, what i was reading was was stories and i was starting to connect with a wider world out there um i remember my head teacher mr george and the great mr george he was a, a white man elderly and we're in contact now and he told me stories when i was about 8 9 years old and i was still trying to struggle about who i was what was my identity and he told me stories about nelson mandela hmm. he told his personal story about his experience seeing mandela go into prison in rodan island and then come out as a thin man and about how he connected with this man that was living so far away and i didn't never heard of nelson mandela didn't know what the apartheid regime was didn't know where south africa was but what he had done through his storytelling he just totally brought me into this world and for a kid that was a little bit troublesome i couldn't really sit still he made me sit <laughs> just through his power of his storytelling i was i sat still and he engaged me in this power of story he he helped me to travel around the world and helped me to realize the person that i wanted to be a few months ago i emailed uh, the school to find out where mr george is this to, today and he's he's um, an elderly man he's retired obviously but i wrote a letter to thank him for um 
for all the stories that he gave to me as a young boy. And I received a note back saying he was very happy with what I've achieved. Oh, so it's well, nice. What a great thing. And and this and that really, uh, as I'm hearing you tell this story, it really ignited the passion in you for justice. Think of South Africa, um, or 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 and, and all that the the human spirit in the midst of a lot of political activity that wants to keep that spirit down. I yes. mean, and that spirit for peacemaking and connection. Stories that really connect us on an emotional level that opinions can never do. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's um, why I like to think as the most powerful form of conflict resolution or peace building we can ever have in our world. Um, because if you think about it, it has been the most prolific tool that has divided our world. You know, it's been the thing that has people have used or manipulated to divide communities. So what we do. So is, you mean like the grand narratives that say, here's yeah. how things were. It, yeah, it's all how or people might manipulate a story to, mm -hmm. to create divisions amongst people. Okay. But at the same time, the power of storytelling can give voice to people on the margins of society. It can give voice to those indigenous communities that are, you know, struggling for equal rights. Um, but it also allows you to understand the perspective of an individual from different groups and different societies, as opposed to one grand narrative. It allows you to go through a door and open up a story that you can connect with. Because when we think about how we're, what storytelling does, it helps us to connect on a human level. So before we see someone as a Christian or a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Jew or a Presbyterian or a Catholic or, or, or whatever, we first realize that they're a human being, they have two arms, two legs, their heart beats the same pace as yours, and they are interested in the same things that we're interested in. We are born, we die, we try to experience life, we have families, we enjoy food, and there's mm -hmm. so many parallels. And when these stories, you start connecting these traditional tales as well as contemporary narratives, you find those connections and you realize the power of how much we're all so much similar. And so that's the avenue that I always like to take. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Kiran Singh Sirah. He is the executive director of the International Storytelling Center in Jonesboro, Tennessee, and talking about the power of storytelling. Um, can you tell us a story of how storytelling has uh, connected and, and, and been a vehicle for peace and conflict resolution? Yeah, I mean, there's so many. I don't know where I could start here, but <clears throat> there's. Um, I can talk about my own experience. Um, when I was in, when I, in Scotland, people don't really think about this. In the west of Scotland, we have a, um, a great big issue with sectarianism. Hmm. sectarian conflict that goes back ever since the days of reformation to migration to we have around 360 gangs in glasgow that some of which these gangs are defined through religious lines sectarian lines re, re, sectarian line gangs sectarian lines going back hundreds of years some of them well if you look at it from the perspective of um they are kind of you can almost like as a folklore as a folkloric expression and um, it's it's manifested in arenas of sport religion, politics, architecture, life, okay. and the, the, what, the uniforms that we wear, the colors that we wear, or how we identify our lives, <clears throat> which is really what folklore is to me. But um, uh, so I, I, when I first moved to Glasgow in 2002, I realized that the a city of three million people was still trying to struggle with this sectarian divide, a city that's more or less half Catholic, half Protestant. And we have two big soccer 
teams, uh, Glasgow Celtic and Glasgow Rangers. If you support Celtic, you're a Catholic. If you support Rangers, you're a Protestant. And so it, it's, it's known as the, the fuel that ignites the sectarian violence. Um, so I, st- I started up a program called Bigot Busters. It's a catchy name, but it was initially a school's program. Was that again, Bigot Busters? Bigot Busters. Okay. The idea of busting bigotry. Right, sure. And it was a catchy name that we uh-huh. initiated for a school's program where I worked with faith-based and non-denominational schools with a chance for people to come together. But when it became very successful and Her Majesty's Inspectorate for Education gave it the kind of seal of approval, the Scottish government and the Northern Ireland Assembly, then I started working with groups from Northern Ireland. And through the peace process, people coming out of Northern Ireland, many groups were kind of sent to me. And I was a museum of, I was a curator in a museum of religion in Glasgow at this time. Hmm. And so I used the space to bring groups together around the table and to use the artifacts and objects and music and audios and the things that we kind of collected to enable people to, to tell their stories of their experiences. And I do remember there was one individual that really stood out for me and he was a, a member of the Orange Order. The Orange Order, which is seen as the Protestant fraternity. Mm-hmm. And many people don't really understand the Protestant fraternity of the Orange Lodge because they just associate it with the big marching culture. There's something that's anti-Catholic where they believe the Pope's the Antichrist sort of thing. Many. So it's, but what he said was that to participate in that one day, that reconciliation day, that peace process, he, was, he came to Glasgow because he believed in the teachings of Christ where it says, love thy neighbor. And he said that by doing that, one act by coming over to Glasgow from Belfast, his members of his own community had disowned him. Members of his own family had disowned him. Mm. But he knew that his faith was important to him and the act of coming o- coming to Glasgow and participating with his Roman Catholic friends, the archdiocese, the ecumenical community and the police and etc. by participating in that discussion, he knew that it was an important step forward for um, establishing a more peaceful community. Now, I like to tell that story because many people don't, won't engage with members of the Orange Lodge. They won't engage with the Hibernian Lodge. They won't engage with people from the different divides. But what that did was show there was a that touch of humanity that was really important and somebody willing to move out of their comfort zone to be the single person. And that shows courage to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that courage is something that I think is should be shared. And when I hear, when I heard that, and when I I had the opportunity to meet this person, I thought, you know, you are brave, um, brave for doing that. Because when you go home, you're going to be isolated. But you did something that was important for your community. So those storytelling, uh, those stories that we tell, can be stories of people who have had courage, but it also can inspire uh, courage in those who Absolutely. hear them Absolutely. to continue that yeah. on. Yeah. And you've done some work in uh, post nine eleven issues re- regarding peacemaking. Yeah, I was. Um, well, that's how I really started my whole. Was where my career kind of like really kicked off because I started out as a high school teacher, as an art teacher, and mm-hmm. I really saw the power of the arts initially when I was working in high schools in North London. When I was working with um, teenage boys and girls that were hadn't seen their parents for two weeks, experiencing addiction problems or teenage pregnancies. You know, and a lot of these kids were really struggling with their voice and their identity. But the power of the arts was enabled them to have that voice. And that's where I realized and the power of the arts. So when I moved up to Scotland in 2001, um, 
I had a job at the National Museum of Scotland, and my job was to bring um, culture and really work on the arenas of culture and community. The effects of 9-11 was something that created these sort of tensions around the world, you know, and people are still, you know, working at why that happened. Um, but what happened in, in, in Glasgow, in Edinburgh, sorry, at this time, there was an attack on a mosque and a synagogue, not by each other, but by people who are trying to divide this community. Okay. And so what I decided to do, and with my colleagues at the National Museum of Scotland, was I contacted, and I literally just brought out the yellow pages, went through all the uh, communities of faith, and I went out and met you know, imams, I went out and met rabbis, uh, priests, uh, people from the Christian denomination, the Coptic Christians that were living in Edinburgh, a small community, uh, Jewish Scots that have been there for like three generations and have kind of... Uh, incorporated Scottish culture, Sikh drummers, you know, a long tradition of Sikh communities, and brought about 6,000 people together. And it was, and I asked them to, to tell their stories side by mm. side. And it was a friendship building event. And when 6,000 people came together. You brought 6,000 people together. I just want to make sure we yeah. got that. Yeah. <laughs> That's that huge. Was, I mean, that was a collective effort from my, you know, I had you know, a marketing effort behind sure. me. Uh, and it was in the, oh, National wow. the National Museum of Scotland, which is a big Victorian hall. And those people that came together was, I mean, it, with my colleagues, we all, it was a team effort. Mm -hmm. um, but what we had was um, music of faith, music for Coptic Christians sang songs of resurrection. We had uh, Buddhists that sang m mantras. We had Jewish Scots that combined klezmer with Celtic traditions and their band was called Celtica Schmeltica, which I think is really great. <laughs> and it was great, you know, it started to, you know, and we had, um, but we had lay members or leaders of the faith community stand and talk about what it meant to be Scottish, what it meant to be um, a Muslim, a Hindu, a Sikh, a Buddhist, a Jew. Um, and there was a the friendship that was kind of, and we used objects from the museum to trace the history of religion and belief and diversity and it's all about identity but it was a, a great big celebration and what happened as a result of that is that the community wanted more friendships were made and so they wanted more mm -hmm. they wanted to come together again and so that's what the museum did and now they have an established program with young people across scotland where they go kids can go to the, the synagogue and then come to the museum and understand the diversity of the jewish traditions within scotland you know, okay. and the diverse communities that have come through the kinder transports, but also, you know, maybe perhaps Yiddish-speaking communities, you know, you know, from Eastern Europe. So they understand these diverse connections. So you, many people have different types of identities. There's no one static identity. There's, you know, identities constantly changing, constantly flexing, right. and we belong to many different groups. But this was a chance for uh, people to explore that. Um, yeah, and, and you're, you uh, have identified an, as a Sikh, what what does that what does that mean to you? To me, it's it's my origin. It's the faith that I was born into. It's a faith that I've I'm I'm proud to be part of. Um, but Sikhism is a it's a monotheistic religion. It's a very new religion. It's a religion that was you know it's got its influences from both Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, and it was started by a guy called. Um, a guy, he's my prophet, first prophet, Guru Nanak. Mm -hmm. He was a young young boy that was sent out um, to discover the world. And uh, he um, was a farmer's boy and he went to the, um, the market to sell the products that from the farm and he kind of s sold what he needed to and then gave away the rest. And then he went on these 
he just decided that you know um uh, life has to be questioned and we have to support humanity and we, he, he believed in equality for all people men and women different creeds and he 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 um he kind of established this idea and then 200 years after he was born in 1699 after 10 gurus the formation of the religion began by guru gobind singh who um created the the order of the khalsa and we celebrate our holiest day is on a around 13th or 14th of April each year and it's the birth of the Sikhs but Sikhism is a it doesn't claim to be the only path it just it's we believe it's a path for us that um, um, brings us closer to God but we recognize that all faiths and all different religions are just different paths of the same truth and so when I grew up as a Sikh my mom would always say that whenever you meet another individual um, identify them as a human being first before mm. you meet them as a person or what their label is because good wisdom that, that is the most important thing a Sikh can do and they say that we must go on a journey and a Sikh must go out into the world if you, you have to go alone that's fine and adopt five religions that are not your own or five different paths become a Muslim become a Hindu become a Christian whatever path that you choose Understand those religions 100% and fully. Learn the scriptures, learn the language, learn the beliefs, learn the stories. And at the end of that journey, you'll understand what it means to be a Sikh. So it's because mm. a Sikh means to be a learner. So the more we learn, the more we understand and give back to our community, wherever we are, then the better Sikh we are. So it's not a... And again, we, are in, we don't believe in proselytizing. We can't proselytize. Um, but it's just... It's the idea that you're part of humanity and you have to contribute to society. And so whatever job we choose to do, we're not allowed to be rich. You know, we're not allowed to be floating in money. But and we, we should give portions of our money away. But we must choose a life which is about contributing to helping to build a better world wherever that is. Even if it's not from your own Sikh faith, if it's, if it's Christians and Muslims or Buddhists or secular communities, you have to contribute and to help to build a better world. Those are great ethics and philosophies for no matter what one's religion is, to be Absolutely. able to learn someone else's from the inside, you know. Absolutely. And what I've learned is yeah. that a lot of those teachings are very similar to Christian mm -hmm. beliefs. Um, and that's what I have learned. I got to play St. Peter the Apostle in a play once and really learn the scriptures. And I realized there's not that much difference when you look at the teachings of Christ or the teachings of Muhammad or, you know, or Buddha. They, there's a lot of parallels. I know we're going to probably disagree on some aspects, but I like to focus on what we have in common. Absolutely. And we just have about a couple of minutes left. My guest is Kiran Singh Sirah. He's the executive director of the International Storytelling Center in Jonesboro. And, and tell us a little bit maybe about what the Storytelling Center is doing now and, and what your work is there. Well, when the Storytelling Center, when the Storytelling obviously opened up, we have, you know, our biggest key program is the National Storytelling Festival. Began in 1973 by Jimmy Neal Smith. But there are other people. There are other people like Connie Reagan Blake that helped to define the, the concept of a professional storyteller. And what we're doing right now is we're helping to revisit that and ignite festivals across the globe again. Mm. We are encouraging people just to engage in storytelling wherever that might be. Some of our key projects, we're doing a project with the United Nations uh, coming up in, for International Day of Peace, which is around 500, mil 500 million people participate each year. Wow. So <clears throat> we're, we'll be crafting a, 
a story, there's an international storytelling competition and um, people can write stories based on peace, the winner will be flown from anywhere in the world to the United Nations and they will tell their story with Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. I will be helping them to craft that story at the United Nations so they can have a worldwide audience. And that will be an event that's simultaneously events 47 countries around the world so that's one of the projects we're doing but we have the the national storytelling festival which is the first weekend in october always that first weekend in october and we're you know diversifying some of the 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 uh, what the people's experiences of what they'll experience you know there's great master storytellers that come from uh, across america from different parts of the world um, but we have got a very strong youth element and young persons element. And one of my, f I think I'm, thing I'm probably most excited about is that we're going to have Anita Norman. Anita Norman is around 16 years old, and she's America's national poetry out loud champion. I was a state judge oh. for the state of Tennessee, and then she went to uh, the Capitol for the, the national competition, and she emailed me, and she goes, Mr. Sirar, um, how can I improve my performance? And I said, Anita, I was going to ask you the same question because you are <laughs> phenomenal. And she, when she speaks, when she performs, it's live recital poetry, which is storytelling. She speaks with the wisdom of this ancient griot storyteller. She is just the most powerful storyteller, one of the best I've ever heard. And I just, I'm just, I'm a huge fan of her. And she'll um, be here in yes. October at, the, at the festival? She'll be performing on the Friday for Schools Day in the Family Tent. And it's a project supported by the National Endowment for the Arts, the Poetry Foundation and Tennessee Arts Commission. And we hope to live stream it. But the idea is that now we have this project where the Tennessee Arts Commission are supporting us so that any public school across the whole state of Tennessee can get subsidized tickets to the festival through a subsidy program. So um, it's we particularly would like to reach out to rural communities, people that haven't experienced storytelling before. And now there's also lesson plans that tie in STEM education with storytelling. And all this stuff will be downloadable from our, our website. Um, so it's really, um, there's new, we're, we really believe in nurturing the next generation of storytellers because we want young people to and see the meaning and, and the power of how storytelling can enable them to them to have a voice. Well, tell us a little bit about uh, what you see uh, the Storytelling Center doing for our area. Well, that's, that's really, I'm glad you touched on that because um, being new to this area, one of the things that I really love is that this is a region of the world that is steeped in stories. And I think that what the, the approach that I like to take is working in partnership. I think there's so many organizations and I, I'm someone that likes to work collectively together from we've got projects. There's projects in, in organizations in Bristol, in Gray, in Johnson City, across the northeast Tennessee region, the Appalachian communities. And I one of the approaches that I love to take is that if we can learn to tell a collective story for our region, then we can encourage people to come here and embrace the cultures of this region. Mm -hmm. It's not about necessarily me coming in and like, looking. this is what we need to do. It's about what currently exists. There's so many amazing, beautiful stories that need to be told. And it's the, the sea just waiting to flourish. And I think when we kind of collectively work together, and that includes church groups to nonprofit organizations, to business organizations. But one thing that we can do is ignite the story of our region for Northeast Tennessee. And I think there's we can do so much more beyond that, but we have a starting place where we, if we think about working together, and that's, 
it's it's great to be working in partnership with um, the Blue Plum Festival or the, mm-hmm. the Fun Fest in Kingsport or, or in Gray and ETSU and Dr. Nolan recently became a friend of the festival. So it, there's a lots of these really diverse, interesting partnerships happening at the moment. And so I'm really one for that. And I think we're always much better when we work together and think about how we can support each other. Kiran Singh Saram, my guest on Religion for Life, very excited to have you in our community, uh, the executive director of the International Storytelling Center in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Thanks Absolutely. for being with me today. It's been wonderful to be here. Thank you so much, Chuck. You've been listening to Religion for Life. I'm John Shuck, minister at First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can find more information about Religion for Life, including links to podcasts at religionforlife.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC in Emory, Virginia. Be well.